Today, I'm delighted on Books, Books, Books to be speaking to Fiona Mosley in Edinburgh about her wonderful second book, Hot Stew, which was named as one of the most anticipated books of 2021 by numerous publications, including The Guardian, The Millions, BuzzFeed and The Stylist, published here in Australia by Hachette. Fiona studied history at Cambridge and then lived in Buenos Aires in London, working for a short time at a literary agency and at a travel centre. Her first novel, Elmet, was shortlisted for the 2017 Man Booker Prize and longlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, as well as winning other prizes and being shortlisted and longlisted for others as well. Her writing has been published in British Vogue, The Guardian, The Financial Times, The New Statesman and elsewhere. The Guardian has described Fiona as a writer of extraordinary empathic gifts and the Times Literary Supplement had this to say about hot stew. It recalls the kind of capacious, rollicking satires Britain produced in and around the Thatcher era. Ambitious, scathing and damn good fun. Fiona, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being here. It's wonderful to talk to you. I'm going to start by putting to you the wonderful description you gave of your book, Hot Stew, on Instagram. You said, it has heroic queers, junkie magicians, Russian oligarchs, a radical protest movement, underground mansions, a glamorous borzoi, and a small amount of tasteful sex. What is it about? <laughs> it's about all of those things. Um, yeah, so it's it's set in central London uh, in a district called Soho, which is uh, in many respects the cultural heart of the capital, the cultural square mile. And it's about a building which is inhabited by lots of different people. Um, and their landlady is trying to kick them out to um, clean up the area. So she owns, she's the uh, the billionaire uh, that, I, that I mentioned in that description. And she owns the Borzoi that I mentioned in that description. Um, and she owns a lot of the property and she's trying to, um, yeah, she's trying to sort of, make make more money from it um and the the people who live in in the building some of whom are sex workers some of whom are vagrants and then there's also an old french restaurant um they're really not happy about uh being turfed out so they're putting up a fight and so that's the the crux of the novel and then around that there are just yeah a, a huge cast of characters over 20 characters who are all all competing for space in this small part of london and all all trying to live their lives as well as they can. Um, and sometimes sometimes their differences lead to conflict and at other times they lead to, lead to surprising uh, moments of companionship. Fiona, could you do a short reading? Yeah, of course. So this is this is very near the beginning and it's, it's essentially the bit where I, I describe Soho. I kind of give a pot, potted history. The building stands in Soho in the middle of London. 
The foundations were constructed in the 17th century during the interregnum. In the space between a father and a son, the ampersand between the king is dead and long live the king. Bricks and plaster overlaid onto a now crooked timber frame. There were wormholes in the timber and snail licks on the bricks. The district was once a suburb. London was enclosed by a wall and to the north there was a moor. There were deer and boar and hare. Northwest of London, northeast of Westminster, men and women galloped out from the two cities to hunt and their cries gave this place its name. So, ho, so, ho. The stone came. Bricks and mortar replaced trees. People replaced deer. Sticky grey grime replaced sticky brown dirt. Paths carved by the tread of animals were set in stone, widened, edged with walls and gates. Mansions were built for high society. There was dancing, gambling, sex. Music was played and plays were staged. Bargains were struck. Sedition was plotted. Betrayals were planned. Secrets were kept. New people arrived. Emigres from France came to escape revolution, guillotine, war. Mansions were divided and subdivided. Drawing rooms became workshops. Parlours became coffee shops. Whole families lived in single rooms and disease spread. Syphilis erupted in sores on the skin and delusions in the mind. Cholera hid in the water, crept through the drains, came out of pumps and down human throats. Books were written, ripped up, rewritten. Karl Marx dreamed of utopia while his wife cooked dinner and scrubbed the floor. His friends met on Great Windmill Street, where wind was once the means of production. When the bombs fell on London, Soho took a few. Dark lesions appeared in the lines of Georgian townhouses and people sheltered beneath ground. After the war, the concrete came and parallel lines and precise angles that connected earth to sky. Houses were rebuilt, shops were rebuilt, and new paving stones were laid. The dead were buried, the past was buried. There were new kinds of men and new kinds of women. There was art and music and miniskirts and sharp haircuts to match the skyline. Films were made, records were cut. Soho came to be filled with the apparatus of sound and vision. Electric currents ran through cables and magnets and copper coils and pushed rhythmic air into dark rooms where people danced in new ways and drank and smoked and ingested new drugs imported from old places. And they spoke again of revolution. And they spoke until the winds changed. Trade and commerce and common sense and common decency prevailed and men and women availed themselves of all opportunities. New roads were laid, office blocks shot up. And luxury flats stood on crumbling slums, like shining false teeth on rotten gums. That's a great, as you say, potted history of Soho, which we're going to talk about shortly. But I thought we'd start by talking a little bit about some of the main characters. As you say, you have ex- you have assembled an absolutely remarkable cast of characters here. You say more than twenty. There are about six who I think we'd describe as the main characters through whose um, stories the plot unfolds. Yeah. Let's talk about some of them. Let's start with Precious. Tell us about her. Who's she and what do we know about her? Precious, we know, lives uh, in a garret uh, in Soho, so in the top flat. Um, Precious is a sex worker um, and she lives uh, with her, her partner, her companion, her friend, Tabitha. So Tabitha is a little bit older. Tabitha's in her 60s and used to be in the trade herself, um, but is now retired and and looks after Precious and lives with her. Precious is in her 40s. She's a mother. She's also a grandmother. She originally came from Nigeria. Uh, She um, grew up between Nigeria and London 
and uh, settled in London, had children, did various jobs. She was at one point in nursing, at another point she worked um, in, a, in a beauty salon. So she's, she's done various things and um, one way or another, she's found herself in Soho making a living by, by selling sex. She's a single mother. Youngest child was one and when she was pregnant with the second. Yes, exactly. So, so she was in a difficult situation, and um, you know she needed a way to make money, essentially, um, and she she needed a way to make money, which was which was also you know had flexible working hours and and enabled her to to have a bit of control. So, so that's what she she does, and um, she lives in this building, and she really takes charge of the. I guess you'd say the the, the fight back. Um, she's she's quite a reluctant leader, but a very good leader. She's the kind of people person that people flock to, and you know they get these eviction notices, and she's just not going to take it because it's it's her home, you know. And and she says at one point in the novel that she doesn't really know what a home is. She's had various homes. She's you know she's she's been in various situations, but what she does know that it that a home is a Home is a place that you you leave a mark on and that leaves a mark on you. And that's that's what makes a home. Um, and so for, for good or real, Soho is her home. Yeah, so she she fights back. Um, and uh yeah, I think I think in many respects she's she's the sort of um the beating heart of the book. She absolutely is. And we're going to talk about her and how she does that a little bit later on. Tabitha, as you said, I, I thought this was really interesting, the relationship that they have at one point. I think one of them says, we're in love, but we're not lovers. Tabitha cleans for her. She cooks for her. She cares for her. She's there in a back room in case one of the men that the uh, precious is with becomes violent. Tabitha would then alert the relevant people. That's a really beautiful, really special relationship, I thought. And I, I, I think the way that you portrayed that was really lovely. Let's go to the arch villain of the piece, Agatha. She's in her mid-20s. And she is the boss of the developer Howard Holdings, which, as you say, owns this building in Soho as well as many others. So what do we know about her? Yeah, so so Agatha is, has inherited a huge amount of money from her father. Her father was a notorious Soho gangster who, um, you know, came from quite humble origins, but one way or another made a lot of money after the Second World War when when London was really on its knees and he made his money through, you know, pimping and illegal illegal bars and you know or just all sorts of all sorts of things drug dealing um and he bought property so he had the foresight to kind of buy buy london property when it was cheap and so now you know the the, the property of that business is is worth much more than the the criminal activity but he died when when uh, agatha was in utero so he, uh, in his last will, he left it to his unborn child, thinking that that she would be a son. Um, he'd already had a number of daughters by different women, and he he wanted a son, and he'd been convinced that this one was a son. So he left it to his unborn daughter, and it was it was placed in trust for her. Now Agatha herself, because you know she she was wealthy, she went to all sorts of you know good schools, she was well educated, she was you know her mother who also came from humble origins in Russia made sure that she would be prepared for the life that she was going to lead. But she's aware that she has a very fragile grip on it. Her older sisters are trying to take control of the business, the, the huge amount of London property. And Agatha's aware that the, the shady past um, 
that sort of associated with her holdings, it may come back to to bite her. So she's really wanting to quote unquote clean it up because she's worried about losing everything. So she's absolutely the villain of the piece. She's also, you know, she's also pretty lonely and she's also pretty desperate and she's also absolutely terrified of what what her life will hold if she doesn't have, you know, if she if she loses everything. Um, she's she's kind of obsessed with. Uh, the French Revolution. She's obsessed with this idea of of the sort of the wealthy elites of the Ancien Regime suddenly, you know, w- walking into this situation where they they you know uh, they suddenly lose everything, and and she kind of feels that this is going on around her, and she's the only one c- that can see it all happening. Let's move now to Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee. I've put them together as mm-hmm. a couple or as partners. Tell us yeah. about them. Who are they? Well, um, so they're, they're called Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee because um, Paul goes around Soho performing magic tricks for tips. Who who was the original Paul Daniels? Paul Daniels was a, um, a sort of famous British TV magician from the 1980s and his... Um, his wife, uh, who also was his, you know, on on screen glamorous assistant, was Debbie McGee. Um, so it's a kind of it's a little running joke throughout the novel, but it, you know, p- people in Australia and other parts of the world won't won't get it, but that's fine. Um, so really their real fine. names are Kevin Metcalf and, and Cheryl. So, but that's by the by. They're caught by everyone in Soho. They're called Paul Daniels, Debbie McGee, because he goes around performing magic tricks. So it's a kind of little little running joke, and I wanted to tap into that. That idea of, you know, when you've got a local community or a pub, you know, people have in-jokes and these kind of nicknames for people. So he's he's in the basement of this building that's being being um, threatened with eviction and uh, he's addicted to drugs. And so is um, Debbie McGee. And they, they go around trying to trying to make money in whatever way they can, including performing magic tricks. And they live with this guy. Well, they live with a whole group of people, but there's this guy called the Archbishop, who's a, something of a of a cult leader, um, who who takes people in um, of and um, sort of assimilates them into his little little gang. And he's uh, he's sort of quite a a spicy character. And he he claims to have uh, you know he claims to be three hundred years old, and he claims to have have you know known the real Casanova when the real Casanova was hanging around Soho and he claims to have known yeah just all of the various famous people that have been in Soho over the last um three four hundred years so um yeah he's he's a bit of a an an absurd kind of cult cult leader um and they're in the basement having this little little, well it turns into a power struggle a sort of micro power struggle in the basement for control of the cult so I have to ask you about this. Um, some reviewers have described this cast of characters, particularly those ones, as Dickensian. And I know that you're a big fan of Charles Dickens and you said, you have said that he was an influence on your writing generally and particularly in the writing of this book. Could you talk a little bit about that, about um, how what you like about Charles Dickens' writing and the ways in which that has influenced you in writing Hot Stew? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think I was really influenced by by later Dickens when I was writing Hot Stew. So novels like Bleak House, um, Little Dorrit, Our Mutual Friend. So so these are the, the books that really have this, you know, huge, huge cast of characters. And they're they're really surreal. I, I think, you know, Dickens is always sort of seen as as I guess a social realist. And in some respects he was. Or, you know his characters are, are larger than life, and they 
they their behavior is often completely outlandish and a lot of his characters are very very symbolic and cartoonish and and I was really drawn to that I think I think Dickens has cast such a long shadow over well I mean I guess over literature but particularly writing about London that that it's um yeah it's I think I think his influence um definitely crops up in Hot Stew I think it crops up in a lot of London writing you know I think I think Zadie Smith's very influenced by Dickens so yeah I wanted to include uh, include that kind of element of um of society from top to bottom and that's what that's what Dickens does um, and he also does it in in Oliver Twist of course yes, which is but, you know, a much earlier book Nancy and Fagan sort of imagining Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee okay okay yeah also to ask you I saw that you named as your favorite writer someone who was certainly as I was going through university my favorite writer as well and that's George Eliot and I mm. wondered if her writing had influenced you um, in writing this book or generally? You know, I wish I could write like George Eliot. The thing about, I mean, George Eliot really is a, a social realist. So she, she you know, if, if Dickens sketched out, um, you know, larger than life characters and, and slightly kind of buffoonish characters, she she really, I mean, she was the queen of subtlety. I don't consider myself to be a very subtle writer, I'm afraid to say, which is okay. You know, I, I like all sorts of different books and I like, I like brash, gaudy books and also uh, very sort of subtle, delicate books. When she writes about politics, she tries to write um, from a number of different perspectives. So, for example, in Middlemarch, she takes the question of, of the Great Reform Act of, of the 1830s, which was about extending the vote uh, not to everyone but to you know some more people um and and she she sets middle march at that point because she's looking at all of the different conflicting groups in society you know from the 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 artisans of the town to the clergy to the landed gentry um and everyone in between and she's she's really interested in seeing how these different interests collide. Not dissimilar uh, from what you're doing right here. Well, that's very generous. <laughs> I I wanted to I wanted to look at this issue of, of gentrification from a lot of different angles. And I wanted to, to to an extent to be as generous as I could be to each perspective. Um so you know although there are you know goodies and baddies in a way, you know, I mentioned Agatha it was also important to note that Agatha's coming from a place of in- insecurity and, um, you know, she, she's worried about her, her future. And I wanted all of the characters to have their own, their, you know, their own lives and their own conflicting interests and that, that to really inform the, the, main, uh, the main battle at the heart of the novel. And, and I think George Eliot does that. Um, she does that in Daniel Deronda as well. She looks at all of these, you know, all these sort of individual individual circumstances that uh, blend together as part of a society to create a complex a complex and slightly muddled whole and and I suppose that's what I I wanted to do with Hot Stew a little bit. Let me ask you then about the last of the main characters that I wanted to talk about and Mm. that's Bastian. Who's he? So so Bastian is a very wealthy young man he's from a very wealthy background but he's He's nowhere near as wealthy as Agatha, but he's also totally distinct from her in that her, you know, her wealth is one generation deep and his is 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 much, much deeper. So he can trace his lineage back to the Plantagenet kings of England. So he just feels totally secure <laughs> in himself. 
you know, he's very much part of high society. His dad's I wanted... a prominent lawyer who's, in fact, Agatha's lawyer. Yes, that's Cambridge. the connection. Yes. So Bastian's trajectory in this novel is one of just subtle observation. So he goes um, from the beginning being really quite oblivious to at the end actually looking around and noticing that not everybody is as fortunate as him and not not everybody has the same kind of life. I didn't want it to be a huge transformation. I just wanted it to be a kind of a subtle shift. He goes from not looking to looking. And that that shift happens because um, he's trying to reconnect with an ex-girlfriend. So he just really fancies this girl and it's desire that that causes that shift. And I suppose because a lot of the book is about, well, I mean, sex is a subtext throughout um but I wanted there to be an examination of of desire in its kind of most transformative form so you know he he's just very sexually attracted to this girl and that desire leads him to completely change his perspective on the world it does indeed through his own personal his eyes are opened to the world around him by his his own personal experience, as you say. Let's come back now to the topic of property ownership and gentrification, which is so central to this novel. It's a subject that you've been concerned with in both of your uh, novels, in Elmet and now in Hot Stew. And you've talked about a fear that uh, neighbourhoods will become completely homogenised, and it's it's that fear that's one of the driving forces behind what you write about here. Mm-hmm. I'd like to start by um, asking you a little bit about Soho. So I know that you lived there in 2013 for a few months when you were in your mid-20s, and I read that it was in a ramshackle old building, uh, no doubt a little similar to the one that features here. You've given us that fantastic introduction, which is, as you say, a potted history of Soho. What's Soho like now? What's today's contemporary Soho like? Well, I I was actually there a couple of days ago, so... um lockdown in this country uh, has has eased a little bit and and I was able to um to to visit London in a very socially distant you know in a socially distanced way um just a couple of days ago and uh, I did a couple of interviews in Soho every time I visit it's it's slightly different so it's this kind of village in the middle of um London and that, that's how it was described by um, a man called Leslie Hardcastle who's who's chair of the the Soho Society which is a, a group of residents who are trying to preserve uh, the district and yes it's this village which is surrounded by huge buildings but it's always managed to remain intact it's got old little buildings old theatres old old shops old restaurants but it really is it's changing fast you know it, it Instead of, um, you know, a family-run Italian cafe, it's a, a Pret, a Pret-a-Manger. Um, and, you know, no shade to Pret-a-Manger, but, no, yeah, no. we don't want them everywhere. So, yeah, it, it's it's just just changing a little bit. I think it's interesting to to think about how these these changes affect all of the different stakeholders in Soho. So Soho has its residents. Um, it's traditionally had um, a lot of immigrants, particularly from, from Italy, um, from the 19th century. Um, it's also the heart of uh, London's gay community, London's LGBT community. It's also kind of the theatre district. Um, it's also a place of yeah bookshops and, and restaurants. And it's also a place of sex work. And and always has been. There's a lot happening and all of these different groups, you know, sometimes collide and it's, you know, their interests aren't always the same. 
Um, but I think when when interrogating the idea of gentrification, it's always best to keep focused on on the communities and the people who live there. So um, you know, sometimes we hear the, the this idea about you know cleaning up neighbourhoods and, and the safety of the residents and and safety. You know, safety and cleanliness are both both important things. You know, quite loaded, aren't they? Yes, they're quite they're quite loaded. Exactly. So, um, you know, we don't want these these ideas to be utilised to turf people out. So it's one thing renovating a district. You know, arguably that's that's good for everybody. Um, it's quite another to renovate a district to the extent that the residents are priced out. And that they're no no longer able to run their own businesses and and have you know have control of their own lives. Agatha wants to do something. It wasn't an expression I knew. Blank <laughs> slate, the block of flats where Precious and the other women live and work. What does that mean? Yeah, well, that's that's an expression I came up with actually. So that was I just wanted to sort of that's 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 her coinage she wants to yeah she wants to start afresh she wants to turn over a new leaf and this is part of her own you know her own personal project but she just wants to get get rid of what's there um gut the building and and turn it into something lucrative which you know might be a a pret-a-manger you know a chain sandwich shop or or something else but it certainly won't be it, yeah, it, it won't won't have the character that it had before. And this building, as well as being home to a number of the sex workers, it's also where they work from and they, they work <laughs> almost in a kind of collective, don't they, where they all look out for each other. It's a loose sort of collective, but there's one woman, Scarlett, who's kind of the receptionist. There's mm. some other staff that they uh, contribute to their pay. So it's it's not just where they live, it's where they work as well. It's, it's where they live and work, yeah. Um, so these women in Hot Stew um, have a really, really good situation. Mm. Um, so they don't, you know, I didn't want to present them as absolutely loving their job or loving their work, but nor did I want to put them in a completely dire situation. You know, the, these women have, have control over who, which clients they, they see. They can, they can always say no, and that's the, that's the crucial that's the crucial aspect. So, so they they are they are in control. They keep the money that they earn. They can say no if they want to say no. They, they they're in charge, and um and that's that's really quite crucial to them. And they don't they don't love their work, you know. <laughs> they don't they don't love everything about it. But like it's you know it's better than other jobs that some of them might have had, and certainly it's better than other situations that that other women of other people they know have got. So they're wanting to keep hold of it. Um, and it was really important to me to to present this th- those women as having agency um, because because I think I think often characters who are sex workers are, are presented as being uh, being entirely victims and I wanted to show that although it, you know it's a it's a thorny topic and there are women in very very bad situations that's not true across the board and it's not it's not a kind of homogenous experience. Let's talk a bit about that because I I think that's a really interesting point that I wanted to ask you about. Um, As they start to agitate and to protest against Agatha's attempts to get them out, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of interest comes. There's there's a lot of media interest and there's a lot of interest from feminists. And you make the point that there are two types of feminists. There are those who fight for the, the right of these women to stay in their homes and to practice their trade. And there, there are those who want to free them from prostitution and from the patriarchy. 
And those are the ones that uh, Tabitha tells to get lost. And I think it's really interesting. You've got Precious saying and thinking some really interesting things about her work. At one stage, she this is what she's thinking. It's mm-hmm. just a job. She does it for the money. She doesn't mind the work. It's only sex. She doesn't get what the big deal is. She never has. And at another point, when somebody asks her about the fact that she used to be a beautician and she's moved to being a sex worker, she why did she do that? She says, the money was better and the people are nicer. And that's the word that I'd written down as well, that you are depicting these women as having agency. They're making their own decisions to live and to work in this way for pragmatic reasons. And they're not victims of the patriarchy as some people are trying to make them out to be. And I read somewhere that you've long had an interest in the rights of sex workers and the important role that they've played within feminism. And I'd like to ask you about that. Could you talk a little bit about the role of sex workers within feminism? Well, I think I, I can to an extent, but but I what I would really like to do is is sort of um, point your readers towards some some literature that has been been written by sex workers um, because. You know, one of the things is that they are much better placed to kind of um, uh, explain their politics um, than me, who just, you know, I just write fiction. Um, So a recent book called Revolting Prostitutes um, by Molly Smith and Juno Mack is a really, really good place to start. So um, they're both based in in this country. Um, And they talk about, yeah, the the changing role of, of sex workers in the feminist movement and the way the way that sex workers have tried, you know, tried to collaborate within feminism and have been excluded um, at various points uh, by various people. And they, yeah, they, they, in that book kind of talk about the, the huge variety of experience from, you know, from women who are really, you know, just, you know, working to make, working to make money, like we all do um, to, to some, you know, some situations where women don't, don't have much kind of, um, agency so they they're very interested in presenting the kind of the whole the whole picture um another book playing the hall by melissa jira grant and again that's looking at the the kind of the american side of things uh where the law's a little bit different another great resource is just the website of the english collective of prostitutes so those are women who've had a presence um in well throughout england but particularly in London and, and also in Soho for a long, long time. And they've recently produced design which um, documents their history in the area and their their fight back and their, their struggles. And, you know, there are Hot Stew is, a, is an entirely, you know, fictionalised, made-up book with, with completely made-up characters and made-up places and made-up events. But, you know, a lot of the sort of the fights against eviction that they have been involved in in the real world, um, you know, certainly sparked the idea, some of the ideas for Hot Stew. So those are the people to read about, you know, if you're wanting to know about the real world, you know, um, Hot Stew is, is a surreal, surreal, larger than life, uh, you know, novel. But if you want to know the very, very interesting stories of these women, then, then you know, you can get it from the horse's mouth through these these books and these these online resources. Tell us about the title Hot Stew. What does that what's that a reference to? What does that mean? Stew is an old uh 16th century word. So it's a Shakespearean word uh for a brothel. 
Um, and it wouldn't be really used used today. But yeah, the, the stews of London, which were south of the river at that point, um, fe- feature in Shakespeare and and, and um, works by his contemporaries. So I wanted to kind of get that get that sort of wordplay in. It's a melting pot, but also a, a stew is an old word for a bottle. Um, so that's why it's called that. Let's go back to Evil Agatha before we uh, mm-hmm. come to look at the mm-hmm. women and how they band together. Mm-hmm. So she wants to get them out so that she can renovate this building. What are the tactics that she uses? Well, she starts by simply increasing the rent because she wants it. Uh, she just wants to make life difficult for the women. So she starts in that way. And then she makes some links with the Metropolitan Police. So she she goes and sees a man that she knows might at some point want to leave the police and have a political career. And uh, she talks to him about what she can potentially do for him. And she, she um, talks about the safety of women in Soho. Now, we, the reader, know that she's not she's not particularly interested in the safety of, of these women at all, but she's deploying that as a, as a rhetorical strategy. Um, and she's trying to convince him that it would be a good idea to, to get rid of, of some of these premises because she's concerned about sex trafficking. And needless to say, sex trafficking is, is a, a horrific, horrific evil, but this is not what's going on here at all. She starts yeah. by putting up the rents and then she actually does serve them with eviction notices, doesn't she? Yes, she does. Um, and, and they sort of start to kind of fight back at that point and they, they, they stay. Um, but she, she's aware that she needs to come at them from various different angles, um, kind of both inside the law and outside the law, because I suppose their, their work kind of straddles, straddles what is legal and, um, and Agatha's, you know, inheritance, of course, straddles what is legal and not legal. So, she comes from various different angles. She tries to use the police. She also, um, unbeknownst to her, I mean, she wants to go down a kind of legal legal route, um, but her her driver Roster, who's who's this this Bug. yeah, he he kind of he's been around since the bad old days of of um, you know Agatha, Agatha's father and the gangs, and he um, he wants to use different tactics, and he kind of colludes with her mother to sort of just put feelers out into the old the old underworld and see if they can get together a group of people that can get rid of these women in in a less uh you know in a more abrupt way so let's talk about how the women do band together it's a real mm-hmm. i think one of the other central themes of of the book as well as the this concept of the whole idea of gentrification and of the inequalities in people's lives a central theme to me seemed to be this beautiful idea of female solidarity. So you've got these women working and living together. There's Precious, there's Tabitha, there's a bunch of other ones, Hazel, Candy, Young Scarlet, and they start to band together to resist Agatha's attempts to force them out, and that's because they need to protect their homes but also their livelihoods. How does Precious become the spokesperson? Where does she find the strength for that? I think she, I think a lot of those women are very different from each other. And I was really interested in presenting, you know, it's, it's a group of women that could turn up anywhere in, in any walk of life. You know, they, um, they have a common cause, but they have very different perspectives on things. They, they often rub each other up the wrong way. They annoy each other. They sometimes get into arguments and the reason that precious comes to the fore is because she's the one that they all respect. So, 
you know, they might have their own, you know, sort of rivalries or disputes, but Precious is the one that that everybody everybody likes and and for that reason she yeah she kind of she heads it all up they all they all trust her uh they all trust her to kind of speak speak for them to a degree yeah I wanted to get that yeah I mean that's that sense of sort of women having having conversations and laughing and making jokes and and I wanted that to be really at, at the heart of that community um, I didn't really want to present their work very much at all. In fact, we don't really see any of those women having sex at all. We just see them drinking wine and laughing and joking and pl- plotting their fight back and uh, making fun of each other. So, yeah, I wanted to get that feel across. Can we go back to the idea of um, that we've talked about of gentrification and property ownership and what a fraught sort of topic that is in this book we see really from one extreme to the other we see bastian whose father's a wealthy lawyer who has told him father's told him that when when agatha gets this redevelopment through the father's going to buy him a unit he's going to buy him a flat that we that he can live in Mm. then we see at another stage um precious provides the money to her son and his Mm, partner mm. for a home deposit and they Mm. say that this they're in their 30s they've just had a child Mm. but they say none of their friends owns a home all of Mm. their friends Mm. are are renting well into their 40s and then we've got another Mm. scene with another character Glenda who's evicted Mm. and who says something to the effect of I don't ask for much I don't want luxury holidays I don't want luxury Mm. homes all I want is somebody to love and somewhere to live why is it that that Mm. doesn't seem achievable and I wanted to ask you about that is mm. whether is that how you feel about London today or the UK generally that it's just so difficult for people to own their own homes to have a decent standard of living? Yeah, uh, that, is, that is definitely how I feel. Um, it's you know, so I went to Cambridge University, so I met a lot of privileged people, but I also met a lot of people who like me had come from I don't know I mean just normal (laughs) what I would describe as just kind of average middle of the road um backgrounds uh who who worked really hard did did well you know uh, um at their school and 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 got into a top university and it's it's after university that those those divisions became really really pronounced and and because we graduated uh you know uh, our graduation coincided with the economic crash. You really saw people going in different trajectories, and you know my my best friends from from university they have they have top degrees from one of the best universities in the world, and they're nowhere near owning owning their own homes. You know they work they're in their getting into their mid thirties, and they work in in professional capacities. In in London, one one's a teacher. One one works well for a big trade union actually, um, and one you know some others work work in kind of uh, the civil service. But unless they have kind of help from parents, I mean, and none of none of these ones do. They 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 will just be renting forever. And you know, I I've got friends who have become lawyers and they have been able to afford their own homes, and g- good luck to them. Um, no, I, and I do mean that, but not everyone. Can become a lawyer. We can't have a society which is entirely corporate lawyers. And yeah, I mean, and I yeah, I, I moved to Edinburgh, um, and I, I now do own my own flat because of you know the success with Elmet, and I also had a you know a little bit of help from 
my parents and my partner's parents. Um, but that's that's just not that's not true of everyone. You know, it's a lot of people are just yeah will always be renting. I think which, which I suppose they do that in Paris, but I I guess in the UK we're so set up, we're so geared up to this idea of of home ownership, of home ownership that it is kind of it is kind of galling to just spend your life paying paying rent to to somebody to another individual um, rather than being able to save up money you know I don't know it's it's a broken system I want to ask you about um a make-believe I assume it's a make-believe restaurant that you've got in this book called Feast and it seemed to me that that was a real (laughs) metaphor for the gross uh disparity in income inequality so that's a restaurant I'm going to let you tell how does it work yeah, so I had a lot of fun with some of the, the culinary fads in hot stew. Um, I quite like using my fiction to just play around with um, just little little ideas that I have about, you know, the sort of business schemes or I don't know, restaurant ideas. And the feast is in a big in a big space and there's one long central table and they roast an animal, like a, I guess a pig or a, a cow. And then um, everybody sits along the table and depending on how much you've paid, you get a different cut of the animal. And, and it's, it's supposed to be done like a medieval feast where, where the kind of <laughs> the, the Lords would be served first with the best cut. And then it goes, goes down all the way. But, you know, in some respects it was, it's a kind of a scheme that, that allows people to, you know, um, students on a budget, to, to go and sort of sit at the end of the table and, and pay not very much for, for a nice dinner. Yeah, I guess it was a sort of little, yeah, little allegory. And, and um, yeah, and also sort of dig at sort of food fads. You know, I'm sure the, the same is true of Australia, but London is very into its its food fads. So, yeah, that was a bit of fun. So those, there are quite a few of those culinary references. That was my favourite, but I guess that feeds into the hot stew title as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, yeah, there were other little just sort of fads, like look, a character called Lorenzo is in the countryside and he notices there are some farmers that are advertising a fitness scheme for people from the city to come and do farm work. But instead of the farmers paying paying them for their labour, the people from the city are paying the farmers for the sort of the exercise you know, the fitness kind of aspect. Um, that was just a bit of a dig, a dig as well, yeah. Fiona, finally, I wanted to ask you about this quote that you said. I wanted the whole novel to be larger than life. I wanted to investigate ideas of artifice and fiction and representation. I was mm. wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I wanted this to be very, very clearly artificial. and I, And I think that's that's the word that I keep returning to because Soho is a, is a place of, of, of artifice. You know, it's a place of theatres and cinemas and food fads and um, of cabaret shows and of, of sex work. It's, it's a place, it, you know, it's a place where, where people pretend, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's what it's about. And I suppose I wanted, I wanted that to be reflected in the book. I, I wanted it to be kind of, yeah, gaudy. I wanted it to be, you know, told in in neon lights. I wanted it to be, yeah, very, very clearly make make believe um, and artificial. And I think that's partly because, you know, the subject matter is so so contemporary and so politically fraught. I wanted it to be very clear that this was not, you know, this was not a kind of an accurate sort of portrayal of goings on. 
but also, yeah, I wanted to tap into that, uh, yeah, that grand tradition of, of, of larger than life satire and, and uh, caricature. Which is where we come um, back to Dickens, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's where we come back to Dickens. Fiona, thank you so much for speaking to me today on Books, Books, Books. It's, uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you about this fantastic book and I wish you all the very best with it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberley.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.